a.m. East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your editor-in-chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. Later, I'll pick the brain of MSU political scientist Matt Grossman on the 2020 presidential campaign. And Rich Tupico will lay another Michigan oldie but goodie on us, musically speaking, that is. But first, Betty Sneller and Suzanne Evans-Wagner were working at the MSU Sociolinguistics Lab when the COVID-19 outbreak began. They quickly designed a study relevant for the days of lockdown and isolation. Their project, Michigan COVID Diaries, has asked participants to talk about their daily lives. Snyder and Wagner are amassing those interviews so they can study how people are how their language, rather, has changed over the course of the pandemic. Reporter Cole Tunningly has the story. Dr. Betsy Sneller and Dr. Suzanne Evans-Wagner were working in the MSU Sociolinguistics Lab when the COVID-19 outbreak first came to everyone's attention. They knew that they couldn't continue doing their normal work during such a large crisis, so they designed a new project called Michigan COVID Diaries. They've been gathering interviews with regular people stuck inside during lockdown. Their goal is to study how the pandemic affects the way people speak. Here's Dr. Sneller. You know, in the long term, we're going to be analyzing a bunch of linguistic things, et cetera, et cetera. But in the meantime, one of our goals, both as humans and as researchers, is this um, every, every week we highlight a couple different speakers. And our goal is to get a range of perspectives up on the website, um, basically just to represent what we're hearing, but also to hopefully help people feel not quite so alone in this like self-isolation weird time. Here's Dr. Wagner explaining that her and Sneller agree that their work hasn't changed much. They used to do similar studies. This one is just unfortunately tailored for our current global pandemic. This for us is really more of a change of method than change of um, uh, direction in that sense. Um, But Betsy was doing something relatively different before uh, she joined MSU. I'm a new hire, so I'm starting uh, as a professor in this fall. Um, so before this, I was doing research in a child language acquisition lab. I'm generally interested in how language changes over time, and so how children acquire language is a part of that. Um, and then, although it might seem unrelated, the COVID Diaries project is also a part of that. So one of the questions that we're interested in looking at is, um, so like peer-to-peer, face-to-face interaction is, is theorized to be one of the most important mechanisms in sound change. Um, and so one of the questions that we have, or language change in general, so one of the questions that we're trying to, to test is, you know, once that face-to-face interaction is disrupted, how does that impact language change? But I will say, for me, this is both something I'm interested in in my research life, but also in general, I found myself when, when this lockdown started, I just found myself documenting my own life, like feeling like I needed to take to Instagram and be like, okay, day two of social isolation. This is what the, this is what the streets look like right now. So it also, it grew half out of research interest, but also half out of just this desire to give people a way to do that, to document changes in their lives. The project started small. But Wagner and Sneller both agree that they're starting to get more attention and more participants. Sneller said that they get around 10 interviews a week. We started off with personal, um, personal social networks. So our Facebook, our Twitter, 
um, and then the student group, the lab group as well, and just you know saying please share. Um, but as pieces of you know we kind of had to scramble to get this together because it typically takes quite a bit of time to get um, a research idea through the ethics board and um, participant payment structure in place, which is something that we're working on currently. Um, so we, I've been thinking of this as sort of like a series of soft openings. Um, so we tried our social networks first, um, and then we, we got the website going and, and things seemed to be kind of falling into place. And so then we created a Twitter handle and just trying to find different, um, like one thing that we're trying to do right now is use the Twitter handle to ask specifically solicit points of views that we don't have yet. Mm -hmm. um, so yesterday our Twitter handle tweeted like, hey, if, if you're a small business owner, we'd love to hear from you. We don't have any voices from um, business owners yet. We're also, in, even in the small group of students that are working on this with us, um, we have a Saudi student who's going to reach out to Saudi and Yemeni uh, community members in Michigan. So we'll be getting the voices, I think, of people who are not necessarily native speakers of English um, and who are in you know, very different um, communities than some of the other students in the group. We've got students from Detroit who are from the African-American community in that group. And what we will also do is um, start working more closely with the university to get the word out about what we're doing. So we've been, as Betsy said, we've been somewhat deliberately cautious so far just because the project is still quite new, but also because we want to be intentional about how we compensate participants um, and maybe how we also connect them with one another in interesting ways as the project goes on. Wagner said she hopes that students will be able to use the information that they're gathering for future projects. They're even open to collaboration with other universities. So I think in the, in the short term over the summer, a lot of the student involvement and what they'll get out of it is partly also feeling connected and not feeling lonely and not feeling so isolated and being connected to the larger experience of the COVID crisis in Michigan. They're going to be get some hands-on experience, both with um, helping us to design the prompts that we give people each week yeah. that they should respond to. As Betsy said, going through the audio materials to try and find the interesting parts that we want to share with the public more generally. Then there will be layers of linguistic analysis that come a bit later. And of course, what we really hope is that students will be able to use these recordings for their own projects as well going forward. Um, and that could be anything from a research paper for a class, a senior thesis, something for a, a graduate degree. And then we need to think a little bit about how and in what ways we might connect with other uh, researchers, both at MSU and beyond, in terms of both sharing the data, anonymized, of course, that we have from people, but also um, we're not the only people, the only linguists thinking about this form of data collection or this kind of project. We're aware of some other regional um, groups. So it might be that we'll, there's some larger thing that we can connect with there that students can also be involved in. Wagner and Sneller said that they have to be careful about how they word their questions or else they'll affect the validity of the study. Well, I was just going to say that. Um, I, in fact, one of my friends on Facebook, after I shared it, reached out to me and said, oh, I've noticed that I'm saying I mean a lot more since being in quarantine. And I thought immediately like, hey, first of all, that's a great project that somebody could actually analyze over time is somebody saying, I mean, more often. But my second thought was, I can't say that because as soon as you as a speaker are thinking, oh, am I saying I mean more, then it's going to affect how you're actually talking. It's fair to say too that although Betsy and I have some specific 
interests in mind, the fact that once we've collected the data, other people can work on it means that they will ask whatever language questions yeah. they want to, to answer. So it's going to ultimately be useful for a diversity of purposes. I know there are people out there in the media right now who are quite interested in um, the vocabulary of this mm -hmm. period, right? And I think even when we've been generating prompts to have people respond to for the diaries, um, I have been wondering, do I, if you write something like, can you remember what the last meal was that you had in a real sit down venue, a restaurant or a cafe? What was the meal? Mm -hmm. But I was going to include the phrase before the crisis or before the lockdown or before, like four times. Yeah. Right. But what is the thing? What is the phrase that we've all settled on? And of course it's different in every place, right? Are we, are we really in lockdown in Michigan? It's not Spain, right? We can leave our houses. Mm -hmm. um, is it quarantine? Is it quarantine if you're not sick? Is it isolation if you're isolating with other people? Like, those sorts of questions I think are, are, are interesting for us just in terms of designing the questions. What, how people are gonna respond will probably feed into how we phrase things going forward. The two said that they plan to use the audio recordings that they get from this project to study a wide range of topics. So we're interested in basically every level. So mm -hmm. as Suzanne said, we have our own like particular research questions, but you can imagine studying how vocabulary changes, how pronunciation changes, how your grammar changes. Um, I, oh, somebody mentioned to me, maybe you could do sentiment analysis and mm -hmm. like a computational linguistics project and see how people's, you know, sentiments, emotions are, are changing mm -hmm. as the crisis goes on. One of the, the things that I am very interested in um, is that sort of the other end of the lifespan in a sense to what Betsy has been studying recently. So Betsy's looking at children and children's acquisition of language. And my, my more general research interest beyond Michigan is in how people's language does or doesn't change as they grow older, particularly after adolescence and into young adulthood. So there's a, a long-standing convenient assumption. There's this long-standing convenient assumption that um, many parts of the way that people speak, these different levels like pronunciation, vocabulary, and so on, many of them don't really change after you turn about 16 to 19, fossilized as an adult. And although you can add new vocabulary and new meanings for words, most of the things don't really change unless maybe you move to a brand new location and you gradually start to sound a little bit like the people who live there. But if you stay put, we assume that you don't change. So this is a really great opportunity to see people who are staying put <laughs> yeah. for maybe quite a long time and to find new ways to test that particular question. So that's one of the things that I'm certainly hoping to get out of this. If we can find diarists who want to stay with us for, you know, the months to come. Sneller said that the tone of the responses are getting changes from participant to participant. Some are doing just fine while others are constantly despairing. It, it has been quite a range. So it ranges from, and we already have some multiple recordings from some people. Um, so there's one participant in, for instance, who his first recording was feeling very down um, and teared up during, during the recording. Um, his second recording was much more positive. Um, so he's a teacher. So in the first recording, he was feeling very sad about how the school year is not gonna be in person anymore. The second recording a week later was, he's very proud of his students for adapting to this online learning. And you know, it was very like uplifting and positive. 
Um, so even within a single participant, we get a wide range. Um, but then we also get, you know, some, some people are feeling um, trapped and frustrated by being stuck inside. We have some recordings from people who are recovering from COVID. Um, and that's a very, you know, the, the, the tone there is very much more, this is bad, this is a bad disease, and try to make sure fewer people get it. Sneller and Wagner are interested in more than just studying linguistics. After all, they're from the sociolinguistics lab, so the project is also focused on the sociology aspect of the pandemic. Yeah, because another thing that we're just interested in in general is, I mean, we've been talking about linguistic features, but sort of wrapped up in that is what social changes have happened in your life and how does that impact language in the future. So this is not just how has your life changed during isolation, but also as you go back into normal life, how has life changed? Maybe things will change forever, right? Like, who knows? Maybe it'll be less common to casually strike up a conversation when you're out in a restaurant because maybe restaurants will be socially distancing and less packed. Mm. I don't know. Right. Um, so there, there's a bunch of unknowns. Sorry. You go. I was going to say, well, so thinking about this lifespan question, right? If you're an elderly person and you used to have multi-generational social networks, you, you regularly saw your grandkids, you talked yeah. to all your neighbors, but now because you're in this highly vulnerable group, maybe for the next year or more, you have to be very isolated. What's that going to do? When you're, when you're not being exposed anymore to what's new in language, yeah. will you stabilize even more than you otherwise would have done? Um, mm. Yeah, we have a lot of interesting languagey things we can potentially explore. And I think there's value, I hope, too, for people who want to continue as things return to normal. So that they, you know, they'll have these audio diaries for themselves as well, right? As an archive to look back on and see how things have changed for them personally, both before and after. Yeah, that, that would be a very interesting document to have um, just for yourself. Um. I think there's something too about, so each week we send out different prompts um, and we've been doing quite a bit of work brainstorming what types of prompts might be generally productive, you know, cause people to have something to say, but then also each week something happens, right? So there was the protests in Lansing um, that people wanted to talk about. And so mm -hmm. we had a prompt about that. Um, this past week, the restrictions were like slightly lifted um, so that's something new to talk about. And so it's kind of this, yeah, it's like a, a, a historical document. Strangely enough, Sneller said that COVID has even had a positive effect on some of the people they've heard from. One interesting thing that I found, we've had a couple of people say, we've had a couple of respondents who prior to the crisis were either unemployed or dealing with some other kind of personal life crisis. Um, and both of them have reported feeling um, less bad since the crisis started because suddenly everyone else in their life is also dealing with similar feelings. And so they feel less alone actually now. Um, so that's an interesting thing that I've found. You can find more information about this project on mi-covid-diaries.com. You can also find them on Twitter and Facebook. For City Pulse, I'm Cole Tunningly.
Thanks, Cole. You're tuned in to City Pulse here on 89FM The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. As we do each week, let's talk now to MSU political scientist Matt Grossman about the 2020 presidential campaign. Matt, what is new and exciting in the 2020 presidential campaign since we talked last? Well, the Republicans are sort of uh, floundering for a message to use against uh, Joe Biden. And the one that they've settled on for the moment is to highlight uh, protest uh, violence uh, in Portland and elsewhere. Um, the conservative movement sort of is able to um, coalesce around an argument, and you're seeing it all over uh, Fox News and about 90 percent of the ads that Joe Biden is running are on this issue. But it's just not clear that it's uh, making much of a dent um, or that it's a salient issue that can change the, the course of the election. Do you think it could backfire? Uh, we just had the mayor of Portland uh, tear gas and along the lines of law and order, we just had a judge free Michael Cohn because they say the federal government violated his First Amendment rights. Uh, uh, is Trump painting himself as too authoritarian? Well, we don't usually see uh, advertising and especially conservative media messaging where the audience is already kind of on the president's side as backfiring. Um, but it's certainly not clear that this is a wedge issue that benefits the, the president. Um, if anything, public opinion has been moving against uh, him um, on this issue uh, and there's been some uh, return uh, to polarization on it, um, but not enough that this should this should really help uh, Republicans uh, uh, bring back their traditional voters. Another issue that uh, Trump is uh, hitting hard is uh, who's uh, <laughs> who's got more uh, mental competence, uh, you know, more Joe Biden. Uh, he's flouted this. Uh, Responded rather the results of a test he said was an IQ test that turns out to be uh, a test of whether you have early dementia indications. Um, and uh, he's been, but he's been running ads on this issue. Uh, it, it seems really strange to have these two septuagenarians who probably shouldn't be calling attention to their age at all uh, fighting it out over age. Uh, what are the political ramifications of that issue? Well, this was the issue that they kind of hit out of the gate um, as soon as Biden uh, was emerged uh, the likely nominee, um, but it didn't make much of a dent now, then, and it's not clear that it is uh, helping them now. Um, if anything, polls show that, that people are just as worried about uh, Trump's uh, cognitive decline and age as they are about Biden's. Um, now, that said, that people are concerned about Biden's age, uh, and so there's kind of an opening there. It's just that the contrast really doesn't uh, benefit Trump. Uh, the uh, president announced yesterday uh, uh, he's called off the convention in Jacksonville. Any political ramifications of uh, that decision? I don't think there'll be huge ramifications, uh, except that the uh, Governor Cooper in North Carolina looks better <laughs> in uh, the conflict that he was having with uh, with Trump over that. He looks like he was, uh, you know, looking out for the the success of uh, mm -hmm. not holding a big convention. Um, so it could uh, could matter a, a bit on the margins there. Um, obviously, it'll annoy a lot of people in both of those cities, Charlotte and Jacksonville, who were who were preparing and having to to shift gears multiple times. 
um, but not not enough that you know it's really going to be a vote moving issue. Uh, Trump has now returned to the TV stage for what uh, have been several briefings. It's unclear if it'll be every day. Uh, they're very political. Uh, you think these are going to help or hurt him? Well, he's just not one that's able to follow the the advice, which was to to have the daily briefings that have the the health officials there. Um, even Mike Pence is uh, usually better to have out there than uh, the president, but the president wants to be uh, the center of attention, whether it helps him or not. Um, and uh, it seems like no one's going to change his mind on that issue. Uh, he has struck a fairly reasonable note uh, in returning to these. It seems rather strategic. Uh, now he's for masks, he's for social distancing, he's uh, done the level-headed thing on Jacksonville, uh, but uh, can he really recover from his somewhat disastrous attempts at these uh, briefings uh, uh, that he called off uh, uh, earlier? Well, I'm just not sure it's a messaging issue. I think it's an actual progression of the virus issue. Um, if um, you know the steps that governors are taking in the South are enough to stop the spread and people's kind of behavior changes, um, and so that it, people become less worried and uh, schools are able to open, then, then that could make a difference uh, in, in favor of the president. If it mattered for economic growth, that could also help him. Um, but but right now, you know, the progression of the virus is, is still high. We, we're seeing uh, record case levels by the, by the day. And so I don't think it's anything the president can say uh, to, to get him out of that. Uh, we're talking to MSU political scientist uh, Matt Grossman, as we do every week about the 2020 presidential campaign. And you're listening to City Pulse here on 89 FM, uh, the impact. Uh, uh, Matt, uh, the um, uh, president uh, is uh, uh, seems to be struggling overall with his message. Uh, any advice to him? <laughs> well, the, the, both at the state and national level, um, Republicans do have a bit of an opening on this schools issue. Um, they they perceive it as a much bigger opening than it really is. But there there is uh, definitely going to be a lot of people uh, who are upset that schools are not uh, opening in the, the, the fall. And there are uh, you know, it, it, there are some initial signs that it could, um, you know, increase negative attitudes toward teachers unions, for example, if they are uh, seen as uh, blocking schools from opening. So that would fit with traditional Republican messaging. The trouble is there's just also people very scared <laughs> about opening the schools as well. Um, there's non-parents who, uh, who fear that they wouldn't get the benefit and would, would pay the cost. Um, and even parents are uh, scared to send uh, kids back as well. So if they were able to get the virus under control, then they might have an opening um, and they might be able to say, you know, it's the it's the, the teachers who are holding back uh, the reopening of, of schools. But but right now, uh, with the virus still uh, going strong, um, that message just doesn't work as well. Uh, turning to uh, the uh, people voting in the general election, we're seeing uh, uh, Michigan moving uh, very much in the direction of uh, mail-in voting every uh, 
every registered voter is supposed to have uh, gotten uh, an application form. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on uh, the changing nature of how we vote and uh, whether whether there's anything more to lose here than nostalgia. Well, uh, the, the the record of vote by mail is pretty good in the states that have had it uh, for for a while. Um, obviously, there are people who like to, to vote in person, but um, you know they, they tend to tends to go pretty well. Um, it, it does extend election day, so that is one thing that we're going to be uh, facing in in November, where we may not know the results of lots of races um, for for a while. Um, so that's that's I guess one one downside. Um, there, you know, but but your whether you uh, whether you uh, apply for an absentee ballot and then whether you return it is public information. So there are some targeting um, and kind of mobilization advantages uh, for the for the parties in most places. So uh, it may actually you know help to increase uh, turnout and um, help the help the parties uh, and candidates um, get more people to to turn out to vote. Um, so. It, it doesn't seem to have a, a whole lot of, of downsides so far. Um, on the economic front, we've seen a, a, a decline, or rather an increase in the number of applications for unemployment uh, this past week. Uh, it, it, where the $600 is going to uh, run out uh, very shortly, although it does seem like Republicans will... Uh, do something, uh, perhaps not the full $600, but uh, how do you think the economic issue is playing out? Who, who's being helped? Who's being hurt here? Well, the crazy thing here is that the, the parties are uh, sticking with their kind of ideological sides and their policy preferences rather than their potential electoral gains. Uh, if uh, Republicans just wanted to benefit electorally, they should pass the Democratic bill in the house which would uh spend three trillion dollars uh quickly and uh, get a lot of money in people's pockets right away um, and stimulate economic growth right before the election so normally that would help the party of the president um and uh you know on the other hand uh <laughs> it's the democrats um probably would actually benefit from um you know these provisions expiring and uh, President Trump being being blamed for them, um, but they're uh, working hard to to make a deal. So uh, the parties sometimes stick with their sides, uh, even if they don't stand to benefit electorally. Matt Grossman uh, from MSU, thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. This is City Pulse on WDBM 88.9 FM at Michigan State University. Thanks for listening. For City Pulse, I'm Burl Schwartz.